that the first practice we need to have in order to really have hope uh, is that practice of surrender. And so we said that uh, who we hope in, namely God, leads us to surrender uh, what we hope for, right? So who you hope in, if it's God, would allow you to surrender ultimately what you hope for. And Mary was a tremendous example of that. And so to surrender uh, what you hope for, because of who you hope in, I just want to remind you how countercultural that is. Uh, the world that we live in believes that you should have hope in no one else but yourself, right? The world says that you should hope in you because true happiness comes from you being authentic to yourself, right? You being authentic to who you really are. And since you know what's best for you, right? You know what's best for you. You know how to do you the best. Then you should never surrender your hopes to anyone outside of you. To do so would be inauthentic. Because you need to be true to who you really are. And how do you know who you really are? Well, the world, is, the world would say, who you are is who you feel you are. To look within. And so it's not surprising to us that we find ourselves in a day and age where sex and gender and morals are no longer truths in which we submit to. They are taste in which we select taste in which we sample. In fact, truth has become taste. So to surrender what you hope for to someone outside of you is really repressive. The world would say that that's what's wrong with society, is that you would have to not be authentic to who you feel you are and that the society would put pressure on you to conform to what society says is right. All of that is not going to make you be the authentic self that you were made to be, and that is oppressive. And the biggest culprit in the society is a local church. Right? Religion is oppressive because it's against your happiness. We'll talk about that some more as time goes on, but imagine living in such a context and just acknowledge that it is hard to hold on to God when everybody around you doubts you for holding on to God. They put your words into question. Your words are inspected. Your actions are suspected. Have you ever been in a situation where you have tried to do the right thing, where you've tried to trust who God is and trust what is good and wholesome and true, and others around you did not believe you. Right? They second guess you. They slander you. They push back on you. I think every parent has expected that, felt that, right? Almost every individual, right, I think has felt that way before that at one point or another, we felt what it's like to be second guessed, even when we're trying to do the right thing. Well, we're back here in Luke chapter 1, and if you're new to us, it's page 856 in your pew Bible. And in Luke 1, we're going to remind ourselves of Mary's story and how far we've come already. And that in order for Mary, in order to, for her to surrender her hopes to God's plan, we have to remember that that would have meant cultural shame for Mary. Even those that loved Mary most doubted her. Right, Joseph, we can kind of get that, it's implied in Matthew 1.19, and her husband Joseph 
being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. He didn't believe her. He doubted her. He second-guessed her words. He inspected them. Her actions were suspected. And so even he wanted to put her away quietly, save for an angel that gives him a vision of what's really going on. But people would have been second-guessing her, not just Joseph, her community around her. And so Mary would have had to learn the second practice of hope this morning, how to discover God's strength when others doubt you. Let's hear the words that she sings in Luke 1, 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. God, we just are grateful to be able to read your word this morning and to be able to do what this uh, passage really is telling us to do, to praise you. It's a, it's a doxology. It is uh, wanting to have our souls lifted up in awe of who you are. Uh, it reminds me of the Lord's Prayer in which it begins, hallowed be your name. We want to see your name magnified. We want to see your name hallowed and revered and made much of. And we admit that uh, we need this uh, reset every week, um, every day, uh, taking our eyes off of ourselves and putting them on you to say we want you to be magnified. We want to stand in awe of Jesus and all of what he's done. We love these Christmas songs that began in Luke and that have been rewritten for us to sing today, not just for their sappy, warm feelings of chestnuts roasting over an open fire, but really for the theology and the hope that it gives us as we are strengthened by who you are for us in Christ and what you promise to be and what you promise to do. So we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonders from your law, that our hearts would want to magnify the Lord and all that it was in us. Bless your holy name. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So Mary, in this cultural moment that she's living in, when others are second-guessing her, when others are doubting her, I think that Mary has a feisty faith. And you guys know that last Christmas we got our very first pet, really a pet, and that was a dog. And our dog is named Pickles, and sometimes people come over and see our dog, it's a poodle named Pickles, and they go, is that a poodle or is that a dog? And <laughs> that's not so nice, but people say that, and, uh, and we endure it. But you know, Pickles uh, has a, uh, he loves these chew toys. And he loves to be able to latch onto them and to play with you. And it's, it's really who he was made to be. He's a fun dog, and, I, and he just loves to latch on. And so he kind of is feisty when you get to be playing with him. Maybe part retriever in there. Of course, everyone that has a poodle wishes that they were part something, I guess, is what you guys are probably thinking. Anything bigger, anything more manlier, anything with a different name. But anyways, Mary here. 
uh, is kind of like what I've seen our children do with our dog, and that she has a feisty faith. She really wants to latch on and hold on to God when everyone around her is doubting her and puts her words in question and suspects her actions. And if we're honest this morning, it's not just the people that were there with Mary of her day that put her words in question and doubt her, right? It's not just, she doesn't just live back then. In fact, her words today, the modern enlightened person, actually second-guesses her experience and her words as well. If you're here today, there are some people that might actually think that this story is just fiction, right? And it shows us that even in our tolerant times, our tolerant times when people are to be received on the basis of their terms and that every human story is supposed to be valued, well, guess what? Our culture is still intolerant of some, isn't it? It's tolerance one way. And if we're honest, the reason why people have a hard time being tolerant with Mary It's because her story isn't one of taste. It's not just her personal experience that this worked for her. Mary's story is one of truth. She isn't saying, oh, what two consenting adults can do in the privacy of their own lives and how it can change them forever and turn them into successful people. Oh, this great philosophy. That's not what she sings. What she sings about is what God has done outside of her, what God has done in history. And what God has done outside of her in history is something that changes every single person's relationship with God. She says, actually, in her song, you must choose today whom you will serve. And boy, do we hate someone that has a story that explains all stories. We hate someone that has a story that says this is the way life is for all. And so we're intolerant of her. And people say that this story was created really just by a bunch of powerful people who are trying to uphold and maintain and keep their power. And to really be human is to finally be liberated from all of these oppressive ideas. We live in a day and age now where ideas are oppressive. Friends, can I just remind you as we start here, if you're that skeptic, if you're coming in new to church, new to the Bible, can I just remind you who we're learning from? For those of you who believe the Bible was written by men in order to keep their power and preserve their power and uphold their power of the majority, can I just point out to you who we are learning from this morning? We are learning from Mary, a woman, not an educated woman, not someone of status or rank, an ordinary young woman. And she is set front and center. Front and center And she is also underneath Roman occupation. She's a minority. So if you're trying to be intellectually honest, right, this story is not a story that religious Jewish leaders would want to use, nor ones that Romans would tell to preserve their power, right? If the Bible was written by people to uphold their power of the majority of the few of the men, guess what? The authors of Scripture did a horrible job, right? Read the Gospel of Luke this week. And see that Luke wants to specialize in proving to you that it is the marginalized poor, Luke 16. It's the marginalized woman, Luke 7. It's the ethnic outsider, Luke 10, who gets the center stage, right? Yes, we have to admit that men have done harm, and even men in the church have done harm. We have rewritten stories to preserve power. That's true. And now that might be true in the world, it is not true in the gospel. For the life of me, I can't find it in the Bible, in the gospels. This text is doing the exact opposite. 
And so if you're here this week, perhaps read uh, Luke again and see that it's what you long for, a history that does not privilege the powerful, as we learn from people like Mary. So for Mary to be able to hold on to God and to have a feisty faith for all generations uh, to call her blessed and to be put in question from generation to generation, she has to have a feisty faith. Not stubborn, but feisty because she's delighting in God and she's delighting in God because that's what she's made to do. So let's see how we can have a feisty faith as we delight in God. And as we delight in God, we find out that he strengthens us when everyone second guesses you. God can strengthen you. It starts off here, first of all, notice that Mary's personal praise is transformative. Verses 46 through 50 are that first section in which Mary Mary is very personable. You hear the my soul, my spirit, my savior. He's looked on me, right? And so this personal praise in her life is transformative. And we just need to kind of just back up for a second and say, okay, well, what does praise do in your life to give you hope? Well, praise actually reveals what you hope in, right? What you hope for and who you hope in, right? When you praise something, it's at the very center of your life. It's at the very depths of your soul because it reflects what you hope for and who you hope in. And see right off the bat in verses 46 through 50 that Mary's praise, her personal praise, is emotionally real. For praise to transform your life, It needs, first of all, to be emotionally real. That's why Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary said, this is what I'm looking at, my internal life, my internal world. I'm not just a body, I'm also a soul. And she's pouring out her soul before the Lord. Actually, it's quoted from 1 Samuel 1.15 where Hannah has the same kind of prayer. And Mary says, my soul wants to magnify the Lord. We're, we're glad to have the kids here. And so kids, do you know what a magnifying glass is? If you're under 12. Magnifying glass. What does a magnifying glass do, kids? Yes! <laughs> so if you're older than 12, um, you know that magnifying glasses serve another purpose. And if you go on hikes with the Allens family up Mount Sunapee, uh, they brought a magnifying glass too. And we were out there, got out of the car, we were ready for a fun day, and they brought a magnifying glass, not to look at insects, oh no. Uh, they, they accumulated leaves, and instantly they began to show my kids how you start a, a fire. Yes. Others of us use magnifying glasses for what? To look at things, to make certain things look bigger, right? And so Grace, during this time of quarantine, uh, has been doing paint-by-numbers, very small paint-by-numbers, intricate things, and she has this magnifying glass with a light on it, and she puts it over there, and she can see what she's supposed to be doing and where the lines are. And so we use a magnifying glass to make something larger. You can see everything that's there. And Mary is saying that she wants her whole life to be a magnifying glass for God. She wants when you hear her inner world, when you hear her thoughts, when you hear her longings, when you hear her fears, when you hear her loves, she wants you to be able to see God. Look at her in order to be able to see God. And as long as you don't just repeat this in some kind of trite way, I think it's a marvelous prayer for you to consider this morning, right? Could you make this your prayer when people second guess you? God, Lord, Father, Would you please grant it be that whenever someone speaks the name Owens, your name is magnified? You can put that your own family name in there. Whenever everybody speaks the name 
fill in the blank. God, would your name be magnified? And may it not just be for me, but it would be for my entire family line that when anybody comes across an Owens, that your name is magnified. That's what Mary's praying. She wants God to look great. And she doesn't just pray it, she practices it, right? We see here that Mary isn't just pouring out her soul. In fact, Mary is actually taking truths about who God is and she's pouring those into her soul. So transformative praise has to be emotionally real, but it also needs to be theologically true. She's not just after those sappy, warm, sentimental feelings that you get on Christmas Eve when the lights turn out and you have your candle and we sing Silent Night. She's strengthened when the world doubts her by God because she knows what she's really singing about. It's not subjective musical style or taste that allows her to hold on when the world second guesses her. It's objective truths about who God is. So she's praising, she's magnifying the very attributes of God. Here's the first one. She says, he's mighty. Right? Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. She's been told in Luke 1.31 that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. In Luke 1.31 it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus. And what does Mary say? She says, you know, what? How can this be? I'm a virgin. This is impossible. And Gabriel comes back and says in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. I think Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He wrote a couple sermons in this passage. Spurgeon said, difficulty is not a word in the dictionary of heaven because God is mighty. Difficulty is not a word in the dictionary of heaven because God is mighty. And let's face it, man, the stuff that we are living in in this world, we need God to be mighty. We need God to be strong. We need to know that God who is backing us up when the world second guesses us says this in Romans 8.31, if I be for you, who can be against us, right? So when you're tempted to give up hope, I think this looks out very practically. Let's just pick one example. When you're tempted not to forgive, it takes faith to hear God's word come into your life and for you to humble yourself, to practice forgiveness and letting God, right, be the judge. Those are tough things in our society to do. When you're tempted not to forgive, you need to remind yourself that God is mighty, right? That God's power to work in you begins when you feel that you have no ability to do so. And where do we feel it the most? Probably in forgiveness. God, I just can't forgive that person for what they've done for me. And God says, well, guess what? That's exactly when I begin to work is when you're totally unable to do anything. So how he works in Mary's life, totally unable to have a child because she's a virgin. Not barren, she's a virgin. And so notice how Mary refers to herself. Look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Man, she, she's humble. That's what leads to praise. That's what leads to how great God is, is that she thinks less about herself. And so then she's able to be open to be used by God. Actually, the, the ones that God tends to use are the ones that people think that they're the least likely to be used. They've got nothing to offer. And second, Mary sings about that God's holy. Look at 49b, and holy is his name. We sung about God's holiness this morning. We remember from last week, this child will be called holy in Luke 1.35. Holy just means that God is able to say no to sin. 
Holy means that God has, has the capacity to say no to a tasty evil. Right? Capacity to say no to a pleasing harm. And some of us need that because we keep saying yes to things that hurt us and hurt others because we're not holy. And so right off the bat, we are confronted with the Christmas story. Again, it's not just the manger here. The Christmas story, Mary's announcement that comes to her, and the announcement that comes to you this morning, is that because God is holy, the main reason he is sending Jesus Christ in the flesh for you is to deal with your flaws, to deal with your sins. That's why he has to be holy. Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy. It bypasses the sin of man because our biggest problem is our sin. And so Christmas is not just nice stories about a babe in a manger. The cross is in view, even before Christ reaches the cradle. And so Mary is strengthened by God's holiness in her inner being. Look at verse 47. She says, my spirit rejoices in God. And what does she call him? My Savior. Mary realizes that she needs a Savior. She isn't holy. She needs God's grace in her life. She needs Christ to be her Savior. But guess what, man? Someone who is mighty and someone who is holy doesn't make you feel all warm inside. In fact, it probably produces a lot of fear. If all you had was God being mighty and God being holy, you would say, ah! I mean, His holiness means that He has the right to wipe us out. His might, His power means that He can actually wipe out all rebels. Where does that leave us? Oh, praise God that he's merciful. And that's the third thing that Mary rejoices over. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy is an attribute of God in which he has hospitality. He considers your weakness. And so you put these three things together of who God is and it begins to strengthen you because God is ultimately giving you himself. He's mighty. He's holy. He's merciful. Would you consider how that would strengthen you when the world wants to second guess you for following Christ? Because he's powerful, he can do something in your life. Because he's holy, he must do something. Part of his justice. Because he's merciful, he wants to do something. So when we're second-guessed, God gives us everything that we need, everything we long for. He gives us himself. Charles Hodge said this, God is not more, God cannot promise more, and God cannot do more than Christ is said to be, to promise, and to do. Right? All that we want, all that we need is in Christ. So before you walk away from the sermon and you think, oh, wow, this sermon was a great, it was a new technique and how I can really uh, deal with doubts and my discouragement when other people second guess me. We need to look at the rest of this passage in verses 51 through 55. As Mary turns from her personal praise, right? Now she goes in verses 51 through 55 to universal praise. Let's look at it again. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty ones from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
as obscure as those five verses are, and I think poetry is a hard one to kind of wrap our heads around, especially songs, right? As obscure as those five verses are, it actually really helps change the way you read the Bible. You know, if you're new to Christianity, or if you've been a Christian for a long time, but just reading hasn't been your thing, or listening to the Bible hasn't been what you've been about, you know, I'll just be honest, even growing up in a Christian school, I would say this is how I read the Bible. I read the Bible in a Christian school as if it was like a TED Talk, or as if it was a Twitter feed, or as if it was a blog post. That's kind of how I just intuitively went to read the Bible. I had this orange book as a teenager, and it was like, uh, it was bright orange. I mean, neon orange. Maybe it still exists today. But it was every single topic that you could need in your life, and it would just list verses for you. So if you were angry, you'd look up A for anger, and you'd find all these verses that would deal with anger. And if you were, were sad, you'd go to S, you'd look up sad, and it would say, go back to despair, and you'd have to go back to despair. And, and you'd look up all these verses, and it was just what the Bible was to help you feel better, to help you deal with your present moment. And, and that, that might be helpful, but when we begin to look at the Bible as individual, disconnected stories that are for our self-help, to maximize our potential, all we got to do is just find the right story, and we begin to make ourselves the center of the story, right? But that's not how Mary read the Bible, and it's not how you should read the Bible either. Mary understood that the story of the Bible was really a single story with one major plot line. She knew how her story, here in Luke, fits in the overall, the big picture, the story. And you see that because in this psalm, or in this song, Mary echoes Hannah's song from 1 Samuel. But it's not just that. She alludes to Genesis in this passage, Deuteronomy. 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Mary is essentially trying to put the whole Bible into this song. That could be a good challenge for us on two fronts. Number one, the songs that we sing here, are they that filled with who God is in Scripture or about how we want to feel? Just judge which ones you like to listen to the most. Second would just be, do you know your Bible that well? To be able to quote all of those passages and allude to all of that, that you're so steep in it, that when you want to praise the Lord, out comes Scripture. People that really are great at praising the Lord are people that just know how to read the Bible. It's internal, and it comes out. And that's significant, because what Mary does here in verses 51 through 55 is that it keeps Mary out of the center of her praise, and it keeps God at the center. In other words, it protects us from making worship self-centered. We can do that even in church, can't we? Our worship can be self-centered when we only praise God because he's been that amazing vending machine giving us whatever we want. And we are just more excited and all our soul magnifies the Lord when we finally get that Snickers bar out of the vending machine. You know, you know of course, what to do when you don't get it. You kick it. <laughs> you slap it and if you have the strength and the size and the stature you take that vending machine what we did in high school and what do you do you shake it you're trying to get that thing to give you what you want that's what we do with god too even in church we come here and we say here's my money vending machine here's my sacrifice i lay that down now what do i have to say what do i have to do to be able to push the button to get what i want and it's very mechanical. Actually, in Malachi, right, the very first chapter is about the sin of the people for turning the worship of God into a very mechanical thing. 
where they turned it about, I just go through these rituals and make these sacrifices, and if we just kind of cut this here and spill the blood here and sprinkle a little bit of incense there, then our God will bless our nation. And God says, you know what? Close the door. Lock it up. Your heart's far from me. I, I don't desire that at all. And that's why it's important to see what Mary does here. Mary invites us into a different way. She's poured out her soul before the Lord, but she's also poured in who God is into her soul. And she sung about what God has done for her, but now she's going to sing about what God has done for others outside of her. Not just for what God's done inside of her, but what God is doing for others. Not just what God's done for her, but what God's doing for the nations. Think of it like this. If you're not really kind of tracking with me, I think this is probably my best example of it. Every now and again, I get to do pre-marriage counseling. Pastor Pat and I have done more funerals than we have weddings. And to a certain extent, as a pastor, we feel more connected to our people because of that. People really care and listen during a funeral. During a wedding, they're just excited. They just want to have a party, and they can't wait for the life ahead of them. And so some of the pastoral time you get there isn't as uh, the coin doesn't drop, so to speak. The lights don't turn on. And I think when you do pre-marriage counseling, you know what a, your first question should be. I think it's a question that everybody asks, and that is, why do you want to get married? Right? What is it that you love about the other person? And what I've noticed over the years, this is how it inevitably goes. You know, when I'm with that person, I'm, that person makes me feel, I'm a better person when I'm around. And those are really important things, right? I mean, you want your life to be enhanced by the person that you're marrying. That's a good thing. But if you want to have a marriage that lasts, it can't be all about you and what that person does for you. You have to love them for something outside of who you are. And so I've learned to ask not just what do you love about them and how that works for you. I feel great. They make my bed. They make my lunch. They, I mean, you don't want a wife. You want a servant, okay? I mean, and, and that's a big problem. So I have to ask this question. Okay, so what do you love? But now this time you can't talk about yourself. You have to try to say things that you love about the other person based on what you see in them, regardless of whether they are with you or not. It's who they would be, no matter who they're with. And that's what makes you think that they're amazing about them, that you wouldn't want to change that. You just enjoy that about who they are. And that's what Mary's doing here. She is praising God for who he is and for what he's done, even before she came on the scene, before she was even born. And so she sings about how God has fulfilled his historic purposes. He has shown strength with his arm, past tense. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones. He has exalted those of a humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She's reminding us that God is not our servant to make us happy. God is our Savior to make us holy. That is what she is singing about, that this has changed the world. And so would you consider, friends, that Mary can really only sing about what God has done inside of her because Mary understands and knows about what God has been doing outside of her. She understands her place in history. She understands the times that have gone by. And that's a precondition for her responding appropriately in the time that she lives in. 
Guys, history and people that want to delete history and rewrite history, let me just say that again. Understanding the times that have gone by are a precondition for responding appropriately in the times in which we live in. And Mary understands the whole arc of the Old Testament story, hence her quoting from like 15 different passages that's allowed her to realize that when she's going to have the Christ child, she gets the big picture and it settles her and it gives her stability when the world wants to second guess her because it's not just about her story, it's about the story. Whew. That's power, right? It goes all the way back to what God has promised to Abraham. Look again at verse 55. As he spoke to, what's the next word? R. Where does she put herself in? She puts herself in with the people of Israel. She connects herself to the story of the Old Testament. She puts herself in the Old Testament saints. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. Friends, God is mighty. God is holy. God is merciful. But what's the big point here? God's faithful. God never forgets his promises. In Mary's day, it has been 2,000 years since this promise to Abraham. And so maybe you need to hear this one word of application for you this morning. Friends, do you know that God's silence never means his absence? I mean, we're on the cusp of intertestamental history of 400 silent years. And you could be tempted to think that the reason why your hope is dried up is because God has forgotten about you and God has not spoken and God's not going to do anything. And when it looks like you are completely unable and that God is completely absent, God intervenes in history. Pastor Pat would say, but God, right? That's, that's, that's the whole idea. Consistently intervening in history, fulfill his purposes, and that strengthens us when others want to second guess us for following Christ. I just want to go back to what we said in the beginning. Consider the alternative. If you don't want to go down this road that Mary went down, consider the alternative. The world offers you this this morning. Look within. Decide what makes you happy in the moment. That's how we live. What makes you happy now? Be convinced in yourself of your own power and worth. Create your own meaning. The world is raw material for you to make your life into a work of art. Whatever you want that to be. But friends, all of those things are so subjective and always changing because you're living in the moment, right? They provide no stable framework when the world wants to second-guess you. When your whole life is based upon your preferred feelings, I feel this right now, and your preferred ends, this is what's going to help me to get to that happiness, you know where it leaves you? I think it's dangerous. I think I'm going to go here. I think I'm going to go there delicately. But you know what? If you live with preferred feelings to lead you to your preferred ends, and then you don't get it, and the world second-guesses you, it leaves you in a cultural moment where the status of victim is all that you are. When the world doesn't affirm who we are and the world doesn't affirm what we do because of all these internal feelings that we have and the world second guesses us, we become the victim and we say, who are you to second guess me? Who are you to judge me? And now we call it a microaggression and now we call it hate speech. 
That's not how every culture has understood happiness and the purpose of life. That's the alternative. Happiness has not always been understood in the imminent, in the moment. But for Mary, happiness was in the transcendent. Mary is able to say in verse 48, all generations will call me blessed. All generations, which means that Mary has a worldview in which people will look at her and see that what she has done matters objectively, not subjectively. All generations will call me blessed. Right? Because how she responded in her times, based upon how she understood the history of time, she has a worldview that is beyond her subjective psychological feelings that are constantly up and down. Friends, blessedness that Mary talks about here is the entirety of one's life. It is the outcome of one's life. You know, for you to say, am I happy? Other cultures would say, you're asking that question way too soon. If you're asking, am I happy at every moment, that's how you make decisions, Mary is saying, consider the outcome of your life. Blessedness is something that you look back on and say, is this happiness overall? Have you aligned with God's purposes and God's characters? Mary is able to see a world that is moving to an end, which is God redeeming the world. And it provides stability so that she is able to say, whatever God promises in the future is as good as done. It gives her stability. So let's look and see how we could also interpret verses 51 through 55. I ask you to consider, not only could you interpret this based upon the past, but could Mary be saying something else? Obviously, verses 51 through 55 could be a history of Israel in which she's singing about things like Pharaoh drowning in the sea. She could be singing about things like Nebuchadnezzar being brought low off of his throne. She could be singing about Belshazzar being brought down from his feast when he has been found wanting. God has historically humbled the proud to save his people. All that is true. But is there a way that Mary could be singing about the future? Could Mary be singing about the future in the past tense? What would that mean? You know, a Christian is able to sing about the future in the past tense because whatever God promises is as sure to be done. It's as good as done. So could she be singing in verses 51 through 55 about what is to come, even though it would be seen in her eyes as already done because God is mighty, God is holy, God is merciful, and God is faithful. Could she be singing about Jesus? Could she be singing that it is Jesus who has shown strength with his arm, that Jesus scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, that one day every knee and every tongue uh, will confess that Christ is Lord? Has Christ brought down the mighty from their thrones? Christ doesn't look at those who are wise in their own eyes. The Greeks accept our wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It is folly to them. Is it Christ? I mean, it sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. Christ is this offspring who's ultimately going to be the help and consolation of Israel that we sing about. And in her mind, that's done. So friends, as we close, God is adequate not just for Israel. God is adequate not just for Mary. But God is adequate to strengthen us 
because of all of who he is and what he has done in Christ. Mary's song should strengthen you in Christ, not to find strength in yourself, that power doesn't come from within. In fact, the Bible says the more sure that you are, that you have what it takes, the less strength you'll have because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And so discover the strength that God gives you when others second-guess you. How? Learn from Mary. But what will she teach you? God lifts up the lowly as they are emotionally real, theologically true, in their personal and universal praise of all that he is and has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do want to cry out, oh, the depth and breadth of wisdom, oh, the length and height of your love, how inscrutable are your ways, they are beyond understanding, God, you alone are wise, all things are from you and for you and to you, and we just thank you that we can align our life, our purposes in life and who we are with your grand end of redeeming the world and bringing everything into a right relationship with you. And so we surrender our lives to that purpose, and we thank you for the stability that it gives us. It gives us an anchor in this world that has unhitched the earth from the sun and is spinning around and spinning around, and people are more confused and despairing than ever. We thank you for the chief end of man being to glorify God and to enjoy him forever and that we glorify you most, right, by enjoying you as Mary did here, by delighting in you with a feisty faith, that you are a God who is for us is mighty, a God who is for us is holy, a God who is for us is merciful, and ultimately, Lord, that you keep all of your promises in Christ Jesus, and we praise your glorious name. Amen.